Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another Pain Talk podcast. Today we're going to talk about something that is very near and dear to my heart, and this is really looking at the core competencies that we need around pain management, pain education. And this, this is something that is specific to all of our professions. So there is a core competency that means regardless of what kind of healthcare background you come from, we all need the same information. And where we see this uh, over and over again in other fields would be something like heart disease, diabetes, Stroke. So we we talk about this as having sort of some some very um, standard kinds of training around this that can be shared, obviously, within our communities because it's it's really about empowering our patients to live and manage these very complex illnesses. And you can get into some complexity around these illnesses, but generally the core competencies really want to focus in on what we all need when we go into our different professions. Before we get into that, I really just want to give you an update uh, around cannabis. We did talk about cannabis the last few podcasts. So, uh, and I want to just talk about vaping because there's been a lot of news. And in fact, today when I was trying to push myself on the treadmill and do my civic duty to keep myself healthy and fit, uh, there was a ton of news around vaping. And as most of you know, that early in in, uh, November, uh, the Centers of Disease Control, the CDC, came out with an announcement that they are starting to make a link to some of these fatal uh, uh, complications of vaping that we're starting to see in some states. So we know that vaping can increase your exposure to chemicals that could harm your health, in particular your lungs. So the focus has mostly been on the lung. It also exposes us to nicotine, which can be very addictive. Now, nicotine in itself is not carcinogenic, but it is addictive, as we know. There are also concerns about how the vaping industry has focused in on our youth and how vaping uh, may be a gateway to uh, uh, nicotine use uh, and addiction. And one thing I wasn't really fully aware of is that the e-cigarette industry has actually been developed by the tobacco industry. So you can see that conflict of interest there as well. Now, if you are a smoker and you're using vaping to help uh, reduce your harm associated with smoking, then vaping is a less harmful option. And in fact, some uh, legislators nationally, like in London or the UK, also in Canada, they're very reluctant to uh, dismiss vaping overall because it can be a very effective harm reduction strategy. So uh, we need to we need to, we need more information. There's no question. So what's been happening with vaping, as we talked about, is that we've seen over 2,000 people that have become very sick. And the tendency is for the population to get sick or very young, but they're also the highest users of vaping. Um, We know that there's been over 40 deaths associated with vaping. Most of these deaths have been lung-associated. So we get into something called popcorn lung, uh, something called pneumonitis, and uh, these individuals who become very sick end up in hospitals. They end up in uh, ventilators. And there was a case actually this morning uh, that I saw in the news of a 17-year-old with another very atypical lung presentation where they're looking at lung transplant. So these these injuries to our lung with vaping are really, really significant and obviously can be life-threatening. 
So what they've done is they've linked uh, vaping uh, primarily of THC to vitamin E acetate. And vitamin E is important for us to understand in the sense that it is a very, very sticky substance. And when uh, people vape, this sticky substance uh, lines the air tubes and creates a reaction within the lung. Now, we don't know all the ins and outs of how the damage actually happens, but I suspect they're going to end up finding that the mechanism is through that immune system. And our immune system is just doing what it's supposed to. It's supposed to protect us from a harmful substance. Same thing can happen even with smoking. But this vitamin E acetate seems to cause some significant damage to our lung tissue. So how they figured this out is they actually took some samples of lung fluid from patients who had this uh, this illness. Uh, they looked at a large number of patients, and they also looked at some patients who had died from this, this illness as well to get this information. And uh, so the primary uh, principal uh, deputy director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention gave a news briefing early in November. Uh, her name is Dr. Anne Shushat. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, and she basically uh, said that uh, for the first time that they had detected a potentially toxin of concern, and she described vitamin E acetate. So she felt that this was going to be a very important. She knows that it's not obviously the only substance. They expect to see many more different substances as well. But I just wanted to give that update. The other thing that uh, for those of us out there that get uh, the Canadian Family uh, Physician publication, there was a really uh, very practical, very useful article that was published in uh, November, December 2019. So it would be this month. And uh, the name of the article is Navigating Cannabinoid Choices for Chronic Neuropathic Pain in Older Adults. And we know that the new users of cannabis are this older demographic, in particular men. I found this article very, very helpful, and, and I did learn a, a lot, uh, more than I than I really had previously. And I think this is what we're going to find as time goes on. We're going to start learning more things about how to use cannabis in the clinical setting, but also how to, how to have those really difficult conversations with patients around harm reduction uh, and around risk. And what we are seeing, and I, I would have to attest to this, is that often it's the kids that are coming home. If you're having an elderly parent who's dealing with cancer or or dealing with chronic pain, then their children are coming home with uh, what they're describing as CBD oil. And I was not aware that there is no illegal, there is no legal stock, sorry, not a legal stock, but legal stock of cannabis in Canada that does not contain some THC. So when our patients are telling us that they're just using CBD oil, that is actually not true. But anyway, um, the article is in Canadian Family Physician. I would highly recommend that uh, everybody read it. It's on page 807. Um, and uh, very, very beneficial. Uh, there's also a link there to RX files, which uh, for most of us uh, who know what RX files are, there's some always some very practical and useful information that comes from that database, which is primarily from a pharmacist, and this is out of Saskatchewan. So RX files is an important resource as well. So let's come back to what we are uh, going to focus in on today, and we were talking about core competencies. And the reason I want to talk about it, we've already explained, but I just want to talk about some of the research that's been done out there already because there's been a huge amount of work 
that's occurred already with uh, some very, very smart people uh, that have come together and developed a f- uh, policy. I wouldn't say a policy. It's a format that uh, healthcare providers can use to start looking at developing core competencies around education. And they identified four domains, and they, there's a huge amount of information that they used to determine what these domains would be. And I'll share with you those four domains. The first domain, and I'm, I'm going to kind of simplify it a bit, is what is pain? So it's looking at the multidimensional aspects of pain assessment and measurement. The second domain is how is pain recognized? So this is looking at pain assessment and measurement. The third domain is how is pain relieved? So this is the management of pain. Domain four was how does context influence pain management? And this is really looking at special populations or special situations. So this would include patients who are living with substance use disorder and persistent pain, patients who are end of life, who are living with pain. Uh, Also, uh, pediatric pain comes into this. But I want to add a fifth domain. And the reason I want to add a fifth domain, and I'm really interested in some feedback, is that I think it really matters. And And this fifth domain is how is chronic pain prevented? Why I think that's so important, if you look at other chronic diseases, like we mentioned earlier, how we prevent these diseases becomes really important. So once that horse has been let out of the barn, it's hard to pull them back. Then it's really about management. So if we can reduce the risk of someone developing chronic pain, then I think that is huge. Just like we can reduce the risk of heart disease, reduce the risk of stroke, and reduce the risk of diabetes. So I'm going to focus on this podcast, and I am going to break it up again. I apologize for people that find that frustrating, but uh, I think it's just a little bit easier rather than giving people a whole bunch of information is to break this down and have that conversation while you're out doing your walk or on your treadmill, just like me. (laughs) Get out there and do some exercise. I think it's important as well for me to tell you that I have no disclosures. Funding for this podcast is not influenced by any industry, uh, any organization. This is something that uh, I'm doing on my own, something that I feel very passionate about, with a lot of help from a lot of good people that are uh, supporting me through this, including Darcy, who's on the other end, uh, and does all the editing for me, because I am way too stunned to do the do the editing. <laughs> So this podcast we're going to talk about today is mostly on prevention. So I talked about this previously in another podcast, but we're really going to try and get it a little bit more simplified, try and sort of create some conversation on how we can prevent chronic pain. And it's fascinating to me because we do have more and more information that's coming out about our understanding about how this happens Now, obviously, the factors that contribute to it are very complicated, but uh, we can try and break that down. So I would probably surmise that most of us do not feel confident in our approach to uh, pain. Uh, Probably most of us feel comfortable with our approach to acute pain, but when it becomes chronic, it becomes a little bit more challenging, even though a large portion of our practice uh, involves the the management of chronic pain. So estimates in my environment, which is an emergency department environment, suggest that there are as much as 25 to 40% of patients that are coming to our departments actually have an underlying condition of persistent pain. So it is something that we're seeing a lot of. Now, it's very difficult to track what percentage of patients who present with acute pain go on to develop persistent pain. And that data has actually not been tracked, but I think it would be very interesting to do that. Um, What's hard, though, is bringing in all the different variables that may be contributing. But we do have some data that looks at what are the predictors. And there are uh, some that you probably would 
be familiar with, but some that you probably wouldn't even think could be a contributor. So the scenario I always love to present initially is a patient who comes into our department uh, or comes into our clinical office and says, Doc, I have pain everywhere. I feel pain everywhere. And for most healthcare providers, they're like, okay, that does not fit into any kind of a graft. It doesn't fit into any particular problem. But believe it or not, there is actually a mechanism that helps us to understand this diffuse body pain. So this is something that we can start to break down and talk about as well. And that becomes important uh, when we're trying to help patients manage uh, their persistent pain. But there are patients that will have diffuse body pain. And for me, that is as specific as somebody came coming in complaining of pain in their pinky finger. It's a very specific type of pathology, a very specific type of approach. I have a differential that fits into that presentation. So we'll share with you that as we're going along. So here's what we know. And we did talk about this, is that pain is the most common condition that we see in clinical practice. And it's the only condition that we can say with certainty that we all have experienced ourselves. There is no one that I know of that has not experienced pain at some point in their life. Are there individuals out there? Yeah, we did talk about that in a previous podcast, but that is really rare. And the beauty of those individuals is that the the pain uh, research world is really starting to look at those individuals and what is different about their hardwiring as well as their nervous system. So with these core competencies, we can start to understand that because it's always been a cliche that, yeah, look, this is the most common thing that we see in our clinical practice, but none of us have had significant training. So I have a nursing background as well as a medical background, and I have had very little training in pain management. My palliative care background has actually given me more training that is very specific to complex pain, uh, but there was no training around core concepts around uh, what are the factors or what are the uh, important things that I need to understand or core competencies that I need to understand about pain. So just even the berries, like the basics. So I think we all can kind of uh, see ourselves on the same sort of side of that, that this is something that most of us have not experienced in our clinical training. Hopefully that changes as things go forward. And there is so much good work that's being done out there. Uh, It's hard to kind of keep track of everything. I'd love to talk to everybody about this. So if anybody's listening there that wants to be interviewed, please give us a call or click into our webpage because I love talking about this stuff. I'm a real nerd when it comes to pain. So if we look at some of the fact-checking for November of 2019, we know how to reduce the risk of chronic pain. And more importantly, we know how to reduce the risk of uh, opiate use disorders that are associated with the medical use of opiates. I'm not going to get into that, but that is something that we do know how to reduce the risk of uh, opiate use disorders in patients who are using opiates medically. We understand the forces that are driving this. We also understand the factors that increase the risk and how we need to approach it. So this is where we need to build that capacity around these core competencies. So I'm focusing more on that prevention piece. So we're going to start from the the very beginning. And of course, I'm going to bring in my wonderful quote that I stole from somebody else's podcast. This was Jim Quick. I heard it in a podcast in 2017. He looked at knowledge is possibility. I'm just switching it a little bit stating that evidence is possibility. It only has power if we use it. And when I think about motivational interviewing, I think it only has power if we're ready to use it. And then when I think of knowledge translation, it only has power if we know how to use it. So that statement says a lot. The importance of evidence, 
our motivation to change our practice, as well as how we implement some of these principles into our practice. The article that was in Canadian Family Physician was really good in terms of looking at some of the clinical, practical applications of this knowledge that we're receiving. And this is the whole thing around core competencies. It's one thing to understand the science, but how do we apply it to the bedside? And that's really where I want to be focused. So what, what I hope you learned through this is we're going to talk about pain chronification. We did mention that previously. We're going to look at the factors that increase it, the forces that drive it, what to do when it happens, and then how to minimize the risk of pain chronification happening. And this is what I call the safe ED approach to acute pain. So I'll explain that as we go along. It may not uh, get finished in this podcast. It may take a few other podcasts to get there. But the safe ED is by far what I see as a strategic approach to how we reduce the risk of chronic pain in our settings. So we have a patient. I'm going to give you a case scenario. So she's a 22-year-old female. Uh, She presents to the emergency room. She had surgery on her forearm, and she's two months out, but she is in misery. So she tells you that her pain is 15 on 10. She seems very distressed. The surgeon told her, don't worry about it. The healing is perfect. It'll get better with time. Just wait and see. But this is somebody that's two months out. Now, I do want to state that this patient, uh, when we examine her, she has no uh, indication of an infection of her hardware, of her forearm. She's got no pathology in her neck, and she's got nothing to suggest a complex regional pain syndrome. So these are some of the things that we need to look for, especially when pain is out of proportion to what we see. She does have some risk factors. So um, she has a past medical history of anxiety and a past history of depression. The medications that she's on in the emergency room when we see her is that she's on cannabis. She's taking about five grams a day. Uh, She is using some Seroquel at nighttime to help her sleep. When you examine her, what you notice is that she's got distinct hyperalgesia in around the incision. So it's very, very painful to touch her arm. She's very much in a very significant pain protective behavior, meaning that she is protecting that forearm, she's leaning into it, so she's got that pain tuck. And she is really not aware that she's doing that. It's kind of interesting to me because a lot of patients that need to protect is so strong, but it happens automatically. It's coming from that part of the brain that is really focused in on survival. So that's a very... um, automatic part of our brain. It's a very primitive part of our brain. Sometimes the behaviors that we have don't make a lot of sense when they're being driven by that uh, part of our brain. But to the body physically, it makes sense because it's about protection and survival. So her need to protect was very, very strong. So I had to be very careful how I approached her. Now, this is somebody that uh, you would still see as being acute, but there are definitely some characteristics of her pain that tell me she may have also, may have already uh, gone over to the dark side. She may have actually transitioned, may have already undergone significant pain chronification, has gone over to chronic pain. But we're going to just take it from the perspective that Right now, she hasn't, that this is an acute pain presentation, and we're going to see what we can do to help her manage this and hopefully reduce her risk of chronic pain. So how does pain communication work? We talked about this extensively. I'm going to try and simplify it a little bit. My earlier podcast, it was really overwhelming trying to do this stuff. Uh, I hope I'm getting better at it, making a little bit more sense, but it is a different medium than I'm used to. But let's just see if we can kind of make it a little bit more comprehensive without making it too complex. So we know that pain is triggered by an injury, illness, surgery. And this patient here had surgery. So that pain messaging should set off the alarm 
pain information enters through the these little uh, feelers, the little nociceptors. The the uh, dendritic bodies of these nociceptors are actually outside the spinal cord, uh, in the dorsal ganglia. So they come into that area. They go into the spinal cord. They travel travel up this pathway called an ascending pathway. We know that there are some neurotransmitters that help to facilitate that. Then the brain actually takes that information. It says how big is the threat and what is the appropriate response. And then it modifies the information that's coming in. And then what happens is the information comes down through a pathway we call the descending inhibition pathway. So this pathway is supposed to actually modulate how the information comes back down. And it just completes a complete circle. Now, how I want you to think about this whole mechanism is that there are two major circuitries that we have in our pain system. So we have what we call in the peripheral, it's called the nociceptive circuitry, and neuropathic pain, which is pain that often comes from nerve tissue. So things like shingles, things like uh, nerve injuries. You know, if somebody gets an injury to a nerve, either surgically, uh, that's going to that that that's what we call neuropathic pain. Uh, that still comes through this nociceptive circuitry. So the other circuitry is what we call the higher learning circuitry. And this is where uh, the complex emotions, our memory comes in, there are alterations in our sleep patterns, and there's a stress or survival response. So that higher learning circuitry is where a lot of this complexity and, and decision-making actually happens. So that is literally how communication happens. So it is a circuitry, just like a computer has significant circuitry. Uh, usually c- computers will behave if we're giving them the right commands and we're using the right information. But sometimes they can get a little bit rogue and start doing some strange stuff. The same thing can happen in our uh, nervous system circuitry around pain. So we can have issues where there can be problems. So if we dig a little bit deeper under that and just look at the neurobiology and acute pain, here's what we know. So pain is triggered by a threat. So that injury, illness, surgery, or unknown trigger doesn't have to be real uh, a real threat. It can be real or perceived. It is actually perceived by our body as a threat. When that threat happens, our body needs to respond. So this is where these cells called glial cells become very active. So they are really important. They're the ones that basically maintain homeostasis within our body, primarily associated with the inflammatory system, um, but they're found in our nervous system. They're found in our peripheral nervous system. They are the most plentiful cells that we actually have. So when that pain is triggered, these glial cells get activated, you get an inflammatory response, and guess what? It maintains homeostatic balance once the tissue heals. So pain triggers, pain is triggered by the threat. Our body uses these glial cells to help heal the tissue, but pain will still alarm, right? Because it still needs to protect that tissue until it's healed. And then as the tissue heals, that alarm should come back to a normal homeostatic balance. It's all about survival and protection. So let's really dig a little bit deeper into these glial cells. And so and, and I've, I've described this in a previous podcast, but this is really important. So the way I've had 
other individuals describe this or have seen this in the literature is to think of our nervous system, in particular the neuron and these glial cells and the relationship that they have together as you would a train station. So the so these are neurons, these are neurons and non-neuronal cells. So neuronal cells and non-neuronal cells. Glial cells are non-neuronal cells. Neuronal cells are that. They're nerve cells that are within the, the uh, nervous system. So if you think of the cell body of that nerve cell as a, a train station, the axon of that nerve as the train track, and the glial cells as the passengers. And there's all kinds of different types of glial cells, right? So these glial cells jump on and jump off the train. And when they do that, they influence actually an area which you can think of as the terminal. So this is where a lot of busyness happens, right? That terminal is where there is communication that happens. So these glial cells can actually influence how that synapse uh, actually communicates. And it's got a big fancy name. It's called the tetrapite tetraparite uh, synapse. So it is also the place that if the information that's coming in there from the glial cells, so how the glial cells are influencing how that nerve is functioning, that we start to see these significant changes that happen at that at that place. So this place is called, uh, we, we call this area, uh, we did talk about what kind of synapse it is, but this is where we we see the changes, and those changes are called neuroplasticity. So what these glial cells are able to do is they actually excrete these powerful, powerful pro-inflammatory mediators. So you know when you get a cold or a flu and your body just hurts everywhere? You can you can thank glial cells for that. So actually the good thing about that feeling, especially when you have a, a an infection, is it tells us that these glial cells are active. So they're trying to fight the infection. They're trying to maintain homeostasis in our body. So these mediators are grouped into what we call chemokines and cytokines, and they're really super important to maintain homeostasis. Anyway, but they can become dysregulated, and this is where you start to see this upregulation that starts to happen at this synapse. Okay, so we're going to stop there, and we're going to pick this up next week. Uh, If I hear any more new information around vaping or cannabis, I'll share that with you at the beginning. So we'll stop there, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.